This is a Federal News Network podcast. The U.S. International Development Finance Corporation, known as the DFC, is only about two years old. It grew out of a congressionally ordered merger of two older agencies. It mostly funds itself with fees and interest on the loans it provides overseas. Recently, it got a new chief operating officer. Former Carlyle Group Managing Director and Presidential Transition Expert David Marchik joins me now. Uh, David, good to have you back in a different capacity than the last time you were on. Thanks so much, Tom. Great to be with you. And tell us the form that DFC has taken in the past several years now that it is an ongoing corporeal existing agency. Well, it's an incredible agency with exceptional career professionals up and down and all across the agency. And Congress, on a bipartisan basis, created the DFC and did a few things. It took what was formerly known as OPIC, the Overseas Private Investment Corporation, doubled its size from 30 to $60 billion, gave us additional tools, brought certain aspects of USAID over to the agency, and now we're essentially America's development bank. We're driving investments in the private sector throughout the developing world to raise living standards, to advance American foreign policy interests, and to aid those countries in development. So at this point, roughly how much money is on the street, so to speak? Well, we have about 32 or $33 billion of investments in the ground. In the last fiscal year, which ended September 30th, we invested $6.7 billion, which was a 25-year record for the agency. The staff just did a fantastic job stepping up in climate investments, in global health, in investments to support women and women-run businesses and also in technology. And so we invested about 60% more this fiscal year than in the average we did for the past five years. So the agency really is operating on all cylinders. And where you invest, these are loans that are expected to be paid back, correct? Not grants. So actually, Congress gave us multiple tools. So we have loans, which we expect to be paid back. And OPIC and the DFC have never lost money for the U.S. taxpayer. We have equity investments so that we can invest directly in companies and help them grow and thrive. We provide political risk insurance for companies investing in developing markets. And then we also do grants. So the tools we have are quite numerous, and Congress expanded those tools on a bipartisan basis. And if you look at the list of nations just under the recent activities, they range from Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, to Belize, to Vietnam, across the board. What is the organizing principle behind the loans and grants that are made through DFC? Well, when Congress passed the law, which is called the BUILD Act, they mandated that the agency prioritize what are called lower income and lower middle income countries. So the World Bank has a country classification list where they put countries based on their income level into four classifications. We prioritize low-income and lower-middle-income countries. We also invest in some upper-middle-income countries like Brazil, where we can have a highly developmental impact. And the investments we make are really, really extraordinary. I'll give you a couple examples. This year, we have done a lot in the area of manufacturing of vaccines. So we're in a pandemic. Many people are still remote. And in many developing countries, particularly Africa, are still way, way behind in terms of getting their populations vaccinated. Part of the reason is that we need more manufacturing capacity for vaccines. So prior to the pandemic, the world produced around 5 billion doses of all vaccines. That includes polio, yellow fever, and et cetera. 
we know we need 11 billion doses of COVID-19 vaccines alone. And so globally, we need to flex up and expand manufacturing capacity for vaccines. And we've done a number of investments that will help create capacity for around 2 billion doses of COVID-19 vaccines made in the developing world for the developing world. And do you have sufficient oversight so that the manufacturing of something that sensitive is done according to, for lack of a better word, Western standards of purity and so on? Yes. All of the investments we've made have been with companies that have a proven track record, and they require numerous regulatory approvals, including World Health Organization or U.S. regulatory approval. And they've also partnered with U.S. pharmaceutical companies like Pfizer or Johnson & Johnson, or in one case, they've partnered with a U.S. university, Baylor University. So they have to meet the same stringent regulatory standards that we have in the United States. We're speaking with David Marchek. He's chief operating officer of the U.S. International Development Finance Corporation. And talk about the investment recently, $610 million for political risk insurance for innovative debt conversion in support of marine conservation in Belize. That sounds like a lot of different topics under one loan here. This is a really fantastic investment that our team undertook. And so here's what happened. Belize is a highly indebted country. We partnered with the NGO, the Nature Conservancy, to reduce Belize's debt. And in exchange for reducing some of their debt, they are plowing some of the savings into biodiversity protection, marine wildlife protection, protection of coral reefs, and protection of mangroves. And that's not only important for the environment, it's also important for the economy of Belize, which depends on 40% of their gross domestic product is related to tourism, and most of it is related to ecotourism. So people travel to Belize for the beautiful oceans and the coral reefs and the scuba diving. And with our work, they are going to strengthen protection of their marine ecosystem, which will in turn help them drive development in the country. Belize was hit hard by the COVID-19 vaccine. Their GDP dropped around 14% which is four times the hit the United States took. And how much oversight is there of these investments by DFC itself? For example, do you place people, say, in Belize or in Brazil to be on scene, to kind of watch it, to be sort of a controller of it? Or how does that all work? So we have a monitoring and evaluation program at the DFC where we send people out to visit the sites. We conduct audits. We have the project managers report to us on how they're doing. And we have that capacity, but we're also strengthening it to do a better job to measure development outcomes after we make an investment. Let me ask you a bigger question here. If you look across the globe, one could be pessimistic about what's happening with liberty. Let's put it that way. You look at Belarus, Russia, what's happening in China vis-a-vis -vis its neighbors, possibly Taiwan. Even in our own hemisphere, we've got Venezuela has descended into an ugly dictatorship. Cuba is kind of a persistent sore down there. Do you envision, does DFC, does the administration envision these types of investments as one of the tools in our bulwark against the spread of dictatorship and trying to keep liberty on the move? Absolutely. That is one of the essential goals of the BUILD Act and why Congress on a broad bipartisan basis supports the DFC is that what we do advances our foreign policy and national security interests 
in all the regions that you mentioned. So, for example, in Latin America, we just announced a transaction which supports both the Venezuelan migrant community in Colombia. A lot of Venezuelans have left Venezuela and now live in Colombia. And we're providing financial support for both those individuals, but also for the communities that are hosting those individuals. So we want to work with our partners throughout the world to support economic freedom, to support opportunities, and to strengthen democracy. And in that note, there's one that, for those of us old enough, is still surprising to look at on its surface, and that is the DFC committed $37 million for the Fulbright University Vietnam's campus in Ho Chi Minh City. I mean, there was a time when that would have been unimaginable in my lifetime, and now we have fairly decent ties with Vietnam. Yeah, this is an incredible investment. Actually, the idea for this traces back more than 25 years, thanks to the late Senator John McCain, former Senator John Kerry, and also a former senator from Delaware named Joe Biden. And they put in place a process to normalize relations with Vietnam and to strengthen our ties. And this investment, this support for Fulbright is just the latest manifestation of the work that John McCain and Joe Biden and John Kerry started 25 years ago. And we should point out that you personally have had an in-and-out career, mostly in the private sector, but you did stints in the Clinton administration in the trade area. So you've been out of government for a fair amount of time. What does it feel like to be back? It's great. This is a great agency. The thing that I really love about this agency, which will be important for your listeners, is it's mostly an agency that is run by career staff. We have a very small number of political officials. And so in large part, my job is to support the career officials in the agency, give them room to do their work, and then get out of the way. And that's what I'm trying to do. David Marchek is Chief Operating Officer of the U.S. International Development Finance Corporation. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual, uh, afloat commands. Uh, The first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired after 35 years, I went to uh, work at 
Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life, and um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style, and how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, 
Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes, when I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they gonna say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. <clears throat> um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect, thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally and, agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler, and to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.